All right, good afternoon, everybody. This is David McPeak. Welcome to this very, very special edition of Frontline Fundamentals. And the reason that I say it's a very special edition of Frontline Fundamentals is because we have with us today Ken Sheridan, the author of his book, No Compromise. And really good book. If you hadn't checked it out already, I hope today will motivate you to do that. Um, I've read it three or four or five times now, and we'll, we'll talk about it in a minute. I, I still can't get past chapter four because it's one of my favorite chapters in any book I've ever written. And uh, I, I just, I can't thank Ken enough for being here with us today. I actually had written a book myself, my second one, that, and I kind of had this month slated as when we were going to talk about it and hopefully publicize it a little bit. And I read his book and I said, oh, the, the readers and the listeners have to hear Ken's book, not mine. Uh, that's how good I thought it was. So I super, super excited about the day and want to jump right into it. So Ken, thank you for being with us. Thank you, David. I am extremely happy to be here. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege. Yes, sir. So uh, if you don't mind, start. Just tell us just a little bit about yourself and your background. Hey, David. It's uh, I think my background will speak uh, towards how this book was written and uh, and my, my journey that I've had in safety. Uh, it starts out in Western Kentucky, um, and where I graduated from high school there from Caldwell County. I left there and I went to Murray State University. I, I, man, David, I really crammed in four years of college into four and a half years. And <laughs> I got I got that I got that behind me, and I come out in the middle of the school year, and my aspirations in life was to be a teacher and a coach in uh, in high school. And uh, I graduated in December, and the school system didn't have any job openings at that time. So I wound up working at Kentucky State Penitentiary. I worked there for six months, and there were some horrific things that I'd never been around in my whole life. All of a sudden, I was in the middle of it. And I worked there six months, and I thought, and I, and I had a chance to get out and, and teach and coach football and wrestling over at Webster County in Western Kentucky. So I, I taught school for five years and I had I had three children back to back and it's just wasn't enough money back in those days and teaching to make a living. I just couldn't do it. So now you know, I get this. I've been in I've been in the classroom teaching. Uh, I leave there then and uh, I got a job with a company that had never had a layoff. Even during the Depression, they never had a layoff. And I thought, this is a company that I really want to go with. And I started to work with South Central Bell. And uh, they had the first layoff. They told me after four years that I could either go to uh, Southern Florida or go home. And, and I chose to, to go on home. And, I, and then there I sat, three kids out. Now I've, I've taught school, I've coached, I've worked at the prison. Worked with Tough on Company now. I wound up working with Kentucky Utilities. And I started out there, and I think this speaks to what, what I want to say about how the book was written. I started out there in the line crew, and I worked out as, as a, started out with a, as a grunt there and had to start all over, but I was able to move pretty quickly because I had climbing experience, but that was it. There's only similarities really between the telephone company and uh, power line construction. I worked there until I journeyed out and then things started happening within the company. And I started getting operational assignments and in uh, different leadership positions. And then I'd get a safety assignment. And then I'd go back into operations and I'd get another safety assignment. And that was a mixed bag of operations and safety department throughout my career. And then I wound up retiring from LGNEKU. Uh, going on, I'm working on my sixth year now out from retirement from them. And I started to work with Davis H. Elliott Company, who gave me an opportunity to work strictly safety for Davis H. Elliott and to share with them for the last five years. So during that time, they afforded me the opportunity to uh, and supported me in writing in writing this book and. I wound up being able to put pen to paper and documenting my journey and what really worked throughout that. So not to belabor that, but that's who I am as a person. I live in Western, I live in Louisville right now and uh, uh, things are nice. 
good, 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 good. Again, thank you for being here. It's 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 funny you saying that. Uh, one thing that people in this industry I find are absolutely horrible at is retiring. Uh, retirement equates to getting another job somewhere and then becoming a consultant or whatever it may be, but nobody ever actually stops working, which is, I think, good because folks love the industry and want to share their knowledge. That's one thing that I really love about it. Um, so you, you spoke to kind of your background and uh, them allowing you or affording you the opportunity to write the book. Was there what, what motivated you? What started that thought process to write a book? I, I tell you, David, it's, uh, it's something that I, I really wanted to give back to the industry. It wasn't it wasn't about an increase in profits. It wasn't about any of that. What it was is I truly and please accept this in the way it's intended. This is not self-serving, but there are some things that happened on my journey in safety that I felt very confident in. I felt like that that we move forward in many different aspects. Let me, if I can just take a second here and tell you about it. When I first started in my first safety uh, assignment, I, the area that I had that was given my area of responsibility, there was my first thing I did was check the data and see what we had. Now I'm talking about this was back in the 80s. So they get they give me this job. They had 120 lost work days per year. And so, so now in the 80s, we looked at that and and said, my gosh, 100 and, 120, this is a 20-year average, and we had 120 lost work days average per year. So we started, we started down this path. We acknowledged where we were. We've done all kinds of assessment, and we wound up becoming in that area. We went four years without a lost time incident after that. So I can say this with the safety pros that are on here and the people that are interested, and I know with you, that things like that don't just happen. It takes process, it takes commitment, it takes the nine truths that I wound up writing about in this book. And those didn't just happen, they, they, this developed over, over time, over years. If, I, if, I don't, if you don't mind, then let's jump forward to the year 2000, and I was I was operating as a operational manager, and they come to me and ask me in Western Kentucky, and they asked me, said, "Would you move? Would you take? Would you help us in T and D? And let's let's put this all this together." And LG&E had bought KU, and I was coming up through the KU ranks. Then LG&E bought KU, so I wound up there working, and we put together a collective recordable rate for the contractors. Let me give you this as an example. In 2000, collectively, I'm talking about with all the contractors and subcontractors that we had working, the recordable rate was a 10.5. Now that was in 2000. So then, but by time that, but time is one on, and I please accept this the way it's intended. I'm just telling you the numbers. So then we wound up at the end of that, we wound up, and it, I'm not saying it was one person. I'm saying it was a whole host of things written in this book that caused that number to drop to around a one recordable rate. So I'm the, what I, what I felt was confidence. And I felt like, so I had something of value add to give back to the industry. And so, so when I put this book together, I had so much respect for our trade and what we do and for the people in it. I truly had that. And it's something that I wanted to share back and give back. I had a grandson. I had family members that was getting into line work. And it was like, if you don't mind me saying this, I have one of my grandsons. I wore him out with this book. I'd set him down and I would go over the, and I'm telling you, I believe, and I say that to say, I believe everything I put in this book, I believe in it. I believe that it has value add, and I believe that it helps people create a low risk environment that then winds up giving the best opportunity for people in the trade to make a good living, good money, and do it without getting hurt or hurting somebody else. So I, I, I'll answer, I'll close my answer to that question to you by saying that the, the dedication of this book says this, this book is dedicated to every person in the electric utility industry in the U.S. and the worldwide. 
Each of you has my admiration and respect for choosing a trade. It asks you to work under extremely dangerous and in extreme weather conditions. Your professionalism and commitment to your trade serves millions of customers who will never know your name, but owe you a debt of gratitude. And I, I took a long time to word that in just exactly what it needed to say. And I think that captures the essence of why that I had put pen to paper on this book. Somebody asked me when I was going to do the next one. And I said, well, we'll just have to, we'll just have to wait and see. But David, I don't know how you've written your second book. I, I'd, I'd rather climb a hundred foot pole right now than I had started another book. <laughs> it took me over two years to put this thing together. And and what it is is a it's a it's a whole com, a whole assortment of things that that was on my journey that really is the priorities. It really is a substance. It really mean it really means something. On that fascinating, day. fascinating. Yeah, no, I, I love what you said in that uh, as you were talking about that journey down from a quarter rate over ten to around one that it starts with an honest assessment of where you are. And I think a lot of companies really struggle with making an honest assessment of where they are. And uh, while those numbers don't tell the whole story, they certainly tell a very, very large part of it. So uh, before we get really into the book, I, I want to start in the introduction. And I wouldn't do this to you if you didn't put it in the book. Since you did, I'm going there. Um, I don't know if we have any law enforcement folks on here or not, but very, very valuable safety lesson that you're getting ready to hear right now um, is whether you're a corrections officer, a police officer or whatever. If you have a job that requires you to carry a weapon, listen to what Ken's getting ready to tell you right now. What should you never do with your gun? Oh, my <laughs> well, that that's absolutely a true story. And you got to understand. All right. So I'm, I'm coming out of Murray. And so I'm getting, I get a job at the prison. And one day I was hired as a correctional counselor there. When I, after they hired me as the counselor, as soon as I showed up, they said, well, we're short on security. We, that was two different departments. So we're going to shift you over security for your orientation. That'll make you a better counselor. So now I'm in security when I first get there. And then one day they said, Sheridan said, we want you to carry this inmate to the hospital over Madisonville. Well, it was about a 45-minute drive, and I thought to myself, that's going to be a that's going to be an easy day for me. So to do this, to get an inmate to the hospital, what you do is you pick them up on the yard, you bring them in, and you go through the process of making sure that they're clean. They haven't, that you go through, a, hey, quite frankly, a strip search. So we did all that through the, behind the first set of doors. Then you go through the second set of doors and then you put the handcuffs on them and then you put shackles on them. Then you put the handcuffs to a chain around their waist and then you leave to go do what you need to do. So I go through the third set of doors. Now this young man, hey, I was about 220 at the time. This guy probably weighed 160 pounds. I don't know. A light, a lighter, much lighter weight than I was. And I didn't feel threatened by him at all. And I, but I and I also thought I had a pretty good day because you got to understand I was struggling inside there. We got outside that third set of doors and he looked up at that blue sky and he said, whoa. He was as happy as a lark and he was outside and he felt it. He felt really good. And we got to number one wall stand and they said, Hey, uh, here's you, uh, your pistol, your weapon that we're going to issue for the day. I said, I know that's okay. I don't need that pistol. I'm not going to shoot anybody anyway. And they said, Sheridan, it's standard operating procedure for you to carry this gun. And you're not leaving here with that inmate without the gun. I said, Give me the gun. Give me the gun. So they give me the gun, and any of you have ever seen the Kentucky State Prison down on Cumberland River? Uh, it's a huge thing with many steps. And I took this young man down them steps, and he, he was shuffling, got him down. I had the gun. I, I thought, I'm not putting that on my belt. So I slid the whole thing, holster and all, in my left pocket. And I and I got, got down to the bottom, and a state car pulled up there. And when they did, he pitched me the keys. And you got to remember, and it's kind of embarrassing, but seatbelts wasn't like they are today. And I didn't put any seatbelt on that guy, and I put him in the back seat. And the only thing between me and him was a plexiglass screen. And we left there, 
headed to Madisonville, and we got out about three miles. And I want you to know, that gun, holster and all, fell out of my pocket, fell between the seat, and fell between the legs of that inmate. When they did, I don't know what you would do. But when that happened, I slammed on the brakes. And when I did, I looked up in the rearview mirror, and I heard myself yelling, don't touch that gun. And I watched his face hit the plexiglass window right up behind my head there. And he fell back down. And before I could stop myself, I was running up a hill with the car door open, with my gun in the back seat, with a shackled and and con, con, constrained inmate. And I was hollering, don't touch that gun. Well, he, I got up to the top of the hill. Now my car is running the state car. And I instantly go into cover up mode. How do I cover the, how do I stay out of trouble? How do I avoid the embarrassment of this? And a car would come down the road. And there I was on top of the hill in my prison uniform on. And I had, I had my car running and a car would come and, and David, it was in July when that happened. And I just turned around and pretended like I was picking blackberries when they come by so that I would avoid having any kind of focus or trained eye on what was really going on. And I started down that hill to get my gun. That, that inmate started motioning to me. He said, come on, get your gun. When I did, then he would act like he was going to get my gun and chase me back up the hill. And he did that for three or four times. And I thought I was going, I mean, I thought I was going to stroke out. Finally, I got down there. He, he gave me my gun. I put it on my belt where it was supposed to be to start with. And I left there and he said to me, Sheridan, he said, i tell you what. He said, I won't tell anybody about this if you won't. And I said, you got a deal, buddy. And I never told that story ever until I was long gone from that prison. Because I was embarrassed. I didn't, I was in a mess. But I tell you what, David, there's a couple things I learned. Standard operating procedures are there for a reason. And talking about near misses and talking about what happened, if you can get past all the, the things that go along with you with stuff and get that word out confidently, and you've got an environment that would allow you to tell what happened or what almost happened and then let other people learn from it, then we're on our, our way to building a world-class safety program uh, uh, culture within the different industry uh, companies that we work with. No doubt, no doubt. So uh, a couple of things the listeners added to that, you shouldn't point a gun at yourself, you shouldn't store it in an oven, and if you happen to be around an inmate, you probably shouldn't give it to them. So those are great lessons, but, <laughs> you know, the... Uh, I agree. And, 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 but it's safety truth one in the book. History will repeat itself unless you make a change. And, and I think that's where that story is. And, that, and that's such a good point. And I'm glad you brought up the near miss and near hit reporting because that is so true. History, safety, whatever, will repeat itself unless you make a change. And we make change by learning lessons. Uh, so, David, uh, if, you know, if, if you don't mind me talking about that, history will repeat itself. Let, let me tell you about that. And when you look at that right now, I bet you people who are responsible for the metrics and for the measurements that get done in the company to evaluate how they're doing, I bet you they tell you ballpark-wise about how they're going to finish up the year, what the reporter rate is going to be, what the dart rate is going to be, what the lost work day case rate is going to be. And they can do that because your processes and your culture that you have in place produces that number. And if you want that number to change or get to more perfection, then you got to figure out what changes that you intelligent changes you need to make. And that's what the book's about, the nine truths to get to there. Yeah. Somebody told me one time, and I can't remember who it was, that uh, your system is set up perfectly to get the results that it's getting. And that's why I think and I love the fact we started with it really takes an, an honest assessment of where you are to to develop a no compromise kind of safety culture. So uh, you're going to have to hold me accountable here, Ken, because you know this. I do a lot of frontline leadership training. That's probably what I spend 
95% of my time doing. And, and I, you can't overstate the importance or understate the importance of, of the role of a frontline leader. And then in, in your safety principle, number four, safety truth, number four, as goes the frontline leader, so goes safety. So your accountability here is to make sure that we don't talk about this and nothing else for the rest of our time together, unless we want to. But <laughs> just talk a little bit about why are frontline leaders so important and what are the key roles and skills that, that they need to have? Uh, all right, David, here, here's the way I, I would tee this up. First of all, it, and I, and then I try to hold the stories back, but when, Whenever I started, listen, whenever I started coaching football, I wound up as an offensive line coach and defensive coach. And the offensive line coach, we were failing miserably at our blocking techniques, our blocking effectiveness off the lineman on the team. And I had come in to, to coaching. I thought I've got to be, I've got to have elaborate uh, uh, blocking scheme. I've got to, put things together to where it's above everybody else's, and we were failing miserably. And what I found out was, and I'll make this real quick, what I found out was that it was too complicated for what we wanted to happen, and that was to get off the ball quick and effectively move somebody out of the way and let the running backs get as much, much yardage as they could. So we come back after having pulling guards and, and cross blocking and doing all the things that we were doing, we just simply went to a heads up inside outside blocking scheme. And what I mean by that is, we just simply walked in there and said, "Look, if somebody's heads up in you, you block them. If nobody's there, look to the inside, you block them. If nobody's there, you look to the outside and you block them. And there's no mistakes. And I want you to know that they come off that ball from the first whistle better than they had forever." Now, the way that I put this book together was just a heads up inside outside blocking strategy, which means it's simple fundamentals that we could execute on. And the one thing that I found out, well, nine things that I had written about, but the one thing we're going to talk about here is that frontline leader. And I tell you something, and we brought and we put this chapter together in a very simplistic way. But here's the essence of what I found out in this. Not, this is not Einstein. This is just hard work understanding. As a, front, as a person in a crew at the utility company, it didn't matter so much as what everybody said as what was happened with that frontline leader's leadership when everybody was gone. I found out that most of us on the crew had a natural instinct that we would go to and we wouldn't cross that because nobody wanted to get hurt. But what I also found out was that we would live up to the expectation of that frontline supervisor. What also I found out was that we very seldom exceeded that frontline leader's expectation. But I can tell you this, whenever he wasn't there and we went to another job and we had a different uh, uh, frontline leader, we kind of went almost instantly to what that, that other frontline leader did. So the thing that I found out is no matter how many things you put together, no matter how many truths you talk about, if that frontline leader does not get in, to the to in his head or her head get in that head of how they're influencing safety and how they're influencing those people. Then what they do is they can mistakenly they can mistakenly set the wrong expectations real quick. You know, if they if I for example, I go out on a job. And I say, are you getting paid on this job? Uh, uh, cost plus, or are you getting uh, on units or target? Oh, they can, everybody on the crew, bam, 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 bam. They can tell me what the answer is. If I went out and asked them about, okay, now what's the voltage? Which way does this feed? Where is it tied together? Is there any capacitors on this line? What I found out was they're not quite sometimes as knowledgeable as they could be if they, in fact, thought, took that as the number one priority. And that number one priority is set by the frontline leader. And so I so when I when I look at this, we can do all the other truths, but if we don't have that frontline leader, 
that's out there getting after it and setting examples and talking about safety and doing the proper job briefings and effective job briefings and effective communications, it does not get done. Whenever, whenever there's a trouble spot that shows up when we're doing it, one of the chapters is uh, know what's going on in, in, in your company, know what's going on. If, if, if we find a place that we have a pocket of a problem or opportunities to make better, it's usually let's see what leadership's doing in that area. It's a leadership problem. And it has, and it, and it usually are most quite, most often winds up with that frontline leader is the, is the answer to figuring out how to make that better. So when we look at chapter four in the book, it was David and, and I, so much along with all the stuff that you represent, what you're talking about and what you do. I agree with you totally on that, but that, 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 uh, frontline leader has to know what, what's going on and what they're doing. So if I may add a couple of things, a couple more things to that. Um, if, if when we're, when we're looking at that frontline leader now, our industry it used to be that we would take five six years for a person to journey out and then after they become from grunt to journey to say five years and then back in the day and back in the renaissance when i was coming up and doing my journey through all this we found out that it may be three years more before they become a, a crew leader or frontline leader and then now what we're faced with is we're starting to have to get these people ready before they have nine years of osmosis. You know, it has to be more focused. It has to be more direct. So you ask the question of what are some of the things that people need? Man, they got so much to, to know because they come off. Of, most of the time, these people come off the crew as outstanding technicians. And now they're asked to run a crew. Well, do they really understand by them not even mentioning safety when they start out of the day that what they're what messages that they're sending to the people on that crew and how much they do when they do say something, how much it does mean and what it does to the culture of that crew? And uh, and then when something does happen, how does how does how does how do they react to that? You know, you know, David, I had a time where I, I took a, a opportunity when anybody was promoted to a crew foreman or crew leader or a frontline leader, I asked management if they'd give me an opportunity to sit with, down with them in, from a safety perspective and just have a talk with them about their importance in safety and what they do. I remember talking to this one guy. I said, and I said, listen, buddy, I said, let's 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 go out here. You're fixing to take on a role here, uh, this this crew uh, frontline leader position. And I said, uh, I said, now you're out there on the job and the boy cuts out and falls off that pole. And I said, now, do you feel responsible? Will you feel responsibility as a crew leader of that? Hey, what are you saying, Sherry? What do you mean? I said, I said, do you what do you feel about the he said, I feel like everybody's responsible for their own safety. I said, yeah, but let's let's talk about you. I said, now where where do you feel that this comes into play? Well, they, he he come around, said, yeah, I got you, I'll do that. I said, all right, now the next job, now you're going down here, and I said, you're down two poles down, and a guy falls off a pole. I said, are you responsible for that guy that fell back there? He said, uh, not so much. And I said, well, let's just go on before we get any deeper than that. And I said, if you're on vacation and you're gone, are you responsible for that? And he said, oh, what are you trying to do? He said, I don't know if I want this job. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, I don't, I'm not, I'm this, this is not, I said, I want you to understand your impact and the shadow that you cast over that organization. And what you do is very important to set the stage and to get things to where we don't get people hurt. So that's how chapter four was born. And I know that no matter what else we do, if we fall short at that level, but it, it just doesn't get done. It has to be, it ha that's a, one of the hardest, most critical jobs in the company, I think. It's a it's between a rock and a hard place a lot of times. They get all this stuff that comes down to them, and then it's like handle it, make it happen. 
let's let's do this. And then that person has to has to somehow or another manage people's attitudes or their enforcement of all the operational stuff that needs to be done, the all the compliance issues that are out there. But then in addition to that, needs to create a culture of no compromise throughout in, in my in my vernacular. And that's what produces world-class performance. No doubt. So true. And, and I, you know, it's they're, they're critical importance. We can't state enough, but, you know, and you're right. It's more like a two or three or four year process now. And then what's always really bothered me is the training they get. You know, we, we wouldn't expect anybody to do anything that they weren't trained for in the technical tasks that they do. But then we take this highly competent technician and put them in a leadership role. And literally the training they get nine times out of 10 is here's a different color hard hat, the keys to your truck and a computer. Good luck. And, you know, they're, they're now the boss of the folks that were their peers and best friends yesterday. And it really sets up an environment where um, it, it makes it difficult for people to succeed. And I'm more and more, unfortunately, you kind of mentioned this, but uh, I had a class two days ago. There was 31 people in it of potential frontline leaders at this organization. And as we were going through the introductions about their goals and whatnot, probably 28 of those 31 said, I don't want that job. Who in the world would want to do that? It's, you know, and some of that's because I think we set them up for failure. And part of that is, is the need to make sure that they have training and the skills that they need. A lot of what you talk about in the book is so important. Um, Let me ask you a follow-up to that question that one of our listeners asked. Uh, and it's important uh, because this is so true. I mean, not obviously agree with all the rules and procedures and want to do 100 percent of our job ever. You know, I always tell folks kind of it's not jokingly, but at the end of the day, if you're going to cash 100 percent of your paycheck, do 100 percent of your job. That's a little bit of a hardcore approach to it. But uh, what do you do with crew leaders or supervisors who are reluctant to accept company safety policies and operating procedures? <laughs> Golly, if you if you only had time to know me as a person, then you 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 could accept this answer. I'm a strong employee advocate. I'm a strong person into teaching people how the right things to do and to take it to a thirty thousand foot level first and get it down to to get it down to the detail from there, which is the safety model that I talk about, about being top-led employee-driven. But the question is, what do you do if they don't, do not support that? And, And I say the other to say this, and that is that sometimes people get in the wrong jobs, sometimes. And if you cannot train away or spend one-on-one mentoring time and all the different things, sometimes they don't need to stay in that job. It's too important to to make too much influence. And I think I've made that point already just talking through this, but it's too important to get somebody in a high-risk situation because of the frontline leader not supporting compliance. So you start out, in my stages of development has always been, okay, natural instincts will get you so far. Secondly, next step is compliance will get you somewhere uh, to another level. It'll progress you on down the line. Well, if you've got people who, who who won't be compliant with what we got that's in leadership positions, we got to figure out why, what's causing that. Do they not believe it? Do they not think they really need it? And and the more that we can open up our communications, the more that we can talk without any threat of uh, just getting uh, land blasted, so to speak, right. the more that you can keep it open and talk through that, the more apt you are to work through things and not, not to hold people to accountability to where it's, uh, you know, it's like you do it this way or you're out. Uh, it's more like uh, what what's going on here? And I tell you something, David, that there's a lot to that about trying to figure out where your whole culture is in the organization. If you've got somebody pushing back. So if I can make this tie together and I'm, I'm, I'm going to make sure that I make this point. And I've mentioned this a little bit, but just I think it's important to add this. And top-led employee-driven is a model that I think works best. And that means every or every every job in the organization has a role in safety. Every job. 
No has doubt. a safety. And I'm talking about let's start with the board of directors to the CEO, to the senior vice president, to the vice president, then down to director level, then to the manager level. And then you get to superintendents and then you get to a, maybe a call a group leader team or something. Then you get down to the front line leader. Well, to get from the very top employee top led to the employee driven down here to the person who's got wrenches in their hands and doing the work and you got somebody reluctant to follow what was there then what what does your assessment show you is the root cause of this problem right there with that one individual or have you got a systemic problem that's coming down from the top and you got a gap that somebody's not doing their job if you don't have the right director in there that's doing the job, then that message doesn't get cascaded onto the organization if, and and go go all the way through it. Any we had a thing on this on this journey that I've had where we looked in at everything. We called it the no gap philosophy. And that meant gap in line management. Is there some is there any gaps in there that people are not doing their jobs? You know. I remember thinking the first management job they give me when when all of a sudden I was supposed to know uh, tariffs, I was supposed to know codes, and I didn't. I well, I didn't know that. I had to. I had to. And then I did know safety. So, but what do you think got talked more about? It was I did more research and more thinking and more focus on on the. Uh, how much to charge for line extension than I was on safety. I thought we got this safety thing. We got this whip. We'll just go right into this other stuff and let me get caught up on that. In the meantime, the message I was sending was safety is not as important with Sheridan. Now he's in this job. And, and that, and what I'm saying, and I'll, I'll summarize what I, to answer that person's question if you've got a strong top-led employee-driven organization when it comes to safety, then that person in that frontline leadership will have the have the support, direction, the backing, the environment to talk, the environment to be able to call an all-stop, the person who will tell a customer, no, we cannot do that job. We can work, it is, it is past our pucker factor, if you will, to do that job. We're not gonna do it because we cannot control those hazards to the level that we want to, then we got to be able to back them up. So I say all of that to say, if the frontline leader is not doing the job, you got to figure out why. And there's a whole host of things that you got to do to get to that level, I think. Good answer. Um, If I may, I want to add to it something that you've already said is, I think when you start explaining the influence about safety and everything else to somebody that's never had either authority or influence, even though we always all have influence, then, you know, you so you now have this level of authority and influence and what you do and, and say impacts other people. And if we start, if it's okay to pick and choose how we're going to follow this one rule, then it becomes okay for everybody to pick and choose how we're going to follow all the rules. And I think that can sometimes help folks get over this I don't like this one part of this thing and understand their need to try to understand it a little better and what, what the purpose of the rule and the procedure is, and then make sure that other people follow it because they just, you know, initially, especially they really don't understand their level of influence and authority. David, I had, uh, I, I sat down with the vice president one time and I said, don't, and I said, and one more time, I mean, he allowed me to talk and, and debate and to and to work through things to make it better because he believed where we were going and he wanted to he wanted an environment with low risk and 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 knew what industry we were in. But I, we talked about this. I said, uh, you don't ever forget the shadow you cast and how important it is and and just the way you do things and the way you act about things has. Uh, you're affecting many people just by doing that. So be conscious of all that. And what is your priority in knowing that? Then let's make sure that we communicate that effectively with everybody. And I, and I get and I, I guess I guess my point I'm trying to say is how important it is to to really really walk the walk, so to speak, and putting it in its most simple terms, walk the walk. You know. 
this same guy, he he, you know, showed up at a at a, a place where when we were in transition, and whenever we picked up a different uh, area here, he he backed into a parking place one time, and when he and and not one time, the first time he got there, and we had a back and a rule that back when back back when you arrived. Because, because we as safety people know there's a whole lot less risk to pull out of that parking place than it is to back out of a parking place after you leave. So my point is this, though. People thought that I had changed all these things about let's, let's get this rule enforced. Let's get everybody out there. Let's take the little things and the big things. But this little thing, let's get this right, right before somebody, some public member gets hurt or before we do damage to one of our vehicles or something. Let's get this right. That that that, that vice president making this cast a shadow there the day he got out and backed in that car to the space to get there and then did it every time. All of a sudden, the, the car started changing. They started backing in. You know, so I guess a uh, point to that is it's not all that simple and all that quick, but it does take it, it does take people from the top all the way throughout the organization doing that. And I'm not throwing it on them and saying this is it. I'm telling you that each each the each each position has a responsibility and a role for that. And me and safety. I've always, I, I, we, we had to get this straight on the strategy on how we was going to do it. Okay, the safety department, are they going to be running the line? Are they going to be the, are they going to be the go, the go-to people? Well, yeah, okay, let's, do, but let's say it a different way. The line, the, I'm talking about the line operation. I'm talking about the level we've been talking about, the different job titles as you go through the, at the organization. They, run the business and the safety department supports that line and i'd hire people into the safety department first thing they'd ask me so give me give me a clipboard and a red ink pen some of them would and i said oh wait a minute that they, you know that's compliance there that's good we got to make sure we're compliant we're not ever going to back up man but man your job's going to be much more than that let's t- let's take this on up there and take it out and use your whole brain out there and look for ways to to make things better. And all of that comes back to feeding back to that frontline leader. No doubt. And I love, that was part of the book I really enjoyed was you you talk about how executives can set policy simply by backing into parking places. And the example they set, that was good. What you just said leads me into another thing that I want to talk about, which is uh, a lot of people now are talking about this and going to it. And, and we've got a lot of safety professionals on here. And I think it scares a lot of safety professionals is this concept of operational ownership of safety. And so, you know, kind of explain, if you don't mind, what does that mean? And does that exclude or eliminate the need to have safety folks? Uh, all right, so so in, as I progressed through my career, what I wound up with uh, was having some safety people that reported to me. Okay, I, I had operations, and I, when I was in safety, I had to have them reporting to me. And we tried to get the right the right people in the right jobs. And then to say, I mean, I, I, I'd go out riding. Let me give you an example. I'd go out riding with this, this, uh, this young uh, gentleman, and we go out there, and he'd been on the job for a while, and I was just observing the crew with him, and I was also observing him and seeing what he could do. I was also having open communications and stuff to where we could talk with, trans- with all the transparency in the world and try to make it to where everybody becomes better. I mean, not just uh, facade, but deeply integrated into it. And what, what I found out was when this guy got there, they, they stopped work. And I thought, well, this this usually this happens a lot with safety. Mm-hmm. So, well, let's come down. If uh, safety's out here, we need to give them the opportunity to well, what they were saying. Well, we're not going to work while you're here if we can get away from it. And then the foreman come or come over and asked the safety person, said, "How would you do this job? What would you do here?" And he and that guy started answering and pointing and directing and telling them what to do. And so we had a discussion after that. 
So I'm trying to answer your question here, Dave. We had a discussion after that that said the day that they try to delegate their job to you, they weaken their self as operational leader and you weaken yourself as a safety support system to the operations. That's not your job to do that. It is your job to make sure that you that you go that you can see where the risk are. See, see if you're not at low risk, what's keeping you from getting to low risk. And I said, all they're trying to do is let you be more accountable for the job than what that, they're trying to share that over to you and delegate that to you. And that's not your job here. And it's not saying, that, oh, that's not my job. Don't do it. I'm not saying that. We're all in this together. But don't let them sit and try to tell you what to do or try to take you in out of your first role. And that is to get out there and see what you can do to add a valuable resource to the line, but never let it be said that this line is, 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 is can delegate this safety out to somebody else. You know, I have seen David, I've seen people who try to delegate it to safety committees mm. who try to take oh, yeah. their safety. Responsibility to. I'm not saying that you can't that you shouldn't have safety committees. I'm not saying you shouldn't have a strong safety team. What I'm saying is the the strongest safety, lowest risk environment is when line management says I'm responsible for the safe or the safe work of this organization, and here's what you know. Here's how I'm going to do that, and then have open uh, transparency and open communication with whoever's out there that needs to, that has some kind of input that can help you take it to the next level. No doubt. No doubt. And, and I love that part of the book because I, you find it so often where you talk to folks in operations and, you know, they say everybody's responsible for safety and all the things we have to say. But when you get down to it, the belief is it's somebody else's job. And folks, the folks in operations cannot believe ever that safety is somebody else's job. And safety folks do have to be there and are absolutely essentially necessary to support them. So thank you for that. Um, I actually want to read a quote from the book, if I find it real quick, because this is something, and I really applaud you for this, that I don't think we talk about enough. And it's this whole, you know, we whether we mean to or not, we pit safety and productivity against each other. But it is absolutely forbidden to ever talk about safety and, and associate it with money. And you say this, and I just, I want you to, I mean, I think it kind of speaks for itself, but elaborate on it a little bit. It has been taboo to associate safety and incident prevention with profits because employees might negatively interpret that to mean safety is about cutting incidents to save money on employee medical care. Of course, this is not true. A well-run organization knows taking care of people always prior, always takes priority over profits. And, you know, I mean, you can always tell where somebody's priorities are if you just look at their checkbook and their calendar. And I think this is something that people need to hear more about is, you know, the investment companies are willing to make in terms of safety because it does, I mean, it does at the end of the day, better safety certainly saves you money. But I think sometimes if you just show your employees, hey, this is how many millions of dollars we're spending just on your PPE and we got no problem with that because we love it. Yeah, it's just such a, I don't know why that's so taboo. So anyway, I'll quit talking so you can. Oh, shoot, I can listen to you all day, David. I'm right on the same page with you on that. I, I go back in time where I remember sitting there in front of a group of hard-working professionals, the get-her-done attitude in the room, and and people that have worked all day and they come in for a little safety briefing of the afternoon and, and then it was my time to have the influence that I could give back to the organization there. And I remember saying, do y'all know how much money that we saved on safety by having a safe organization? And I want you to know, boy, it never got out of my mouth before people started jumping on me. You can't say that. Yeah, I mean, this is a true story. It is taboo. You cannot talk safety and money in the same breath. And I thought, well, man, y'all just set me in my place here. I thought, I bet I got to rethink this. I got to think through what I just what up what I just did. Well, then I'll tell you what I didn't back up from it because I got thinking about it. What 
and then I talked to people and we would go out and, and I would discuss that with different people that I, that I would had trust in and I would learn to communicate with them. And, and, uh, I'd say, what does it really matter to you? Why we do safety? If you can get your job done, get paid well for it and get home without getting hurt. What does it matter? I said, if we've got the right organization where we do it because of our, our, our employee, um, uh, advocate because we uh, because we believe in our people because humanistically we want to take care of our human beings that work around us and that, that's one thing but I said what did really really matter if it's because it's to save money I said it, this is a win 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 and I tell you something what I then found as we went through this from an investor owned and used contractors the contractors who performed on our property that were safe then they were attractive to stay on the property. It didn't matter to us if you got five people that we didn't want it. We didn't want you hundred poles. We were not going to allow people to get hurt on our property. And it was your job as contractors to manage that to the level to where you could get the job done without getting hurt. And then when I started working on the other side of the business, I knew that that if there's one thing that'll get you run off from a company, it's that. Well, then now, listen, I bet some people right now, kind of their shoulders getting brought up underneath their ears listening to that. But that's the truth of the matter. Because there's unintentional consequences of having a world-class, low-risk environment that is no compromised safety and be able to then market that as a, as a way to do business. I tell you, we had a, we had an article in AGA magazine that said that the best business business decision made in the company was that it was uh, uh, to run the business with a no compromise approach to safety. That was the best business decision. Well, then you start doing it. Now, listen, David, you start doing this as a business decision. Then it gets in your five year strategic plan. It gets in your succession planning. It gets into your metrics. It drives performance. It drives processes to get you the results that you need. And what we find out is that safety becomes, I mean, is an integral part of the whole business. And then, and then if you allow me to say this, what we found out was that, hey, it's not safety separated and op from operations and having safety over here doing this and operations over here doing that. It's putting them together and having a safe operation. And then when you include that and, and you've got all of a sudden you got a CFO that's looking at your bottom line numbers, you see the savings that are made, you see your EMR going down, your insurance rates going down, you see all the things that are out there that are associated with unintendedly associated with safety. And then all of a sudden you make it an intentional, you make it a business decision. And I say there, and I and I still I'm not backing up from that on any group that I speak to, that safety being a business decision and it is good business is a win, win, win for everybody in the company. Yes, sir. I could not agree more. Um, I'm glad you brought up contractors. That's, you know, my background. We used to teach our folks that, hey, the biggest competitive advantage in today's culture and whatever else is our safety performance. It can be. And Another thing that I'll throw out, because you talk at the end of your book about unintended positive impacts of a no compromise culture, probably the biggest single challenge every organization faces right now is employee recruitment and retention. And I think that the more you can incorporate intentional safety, like you're talking about into that, people want to be safe. People want to work for a company where they feel protected. So there, there's there's so many reasons that safety is a good business decision. And I do think, thank you for putting that in your book, because that's something folks need to talk more about. Hey, hey, David, on, on that about going back, going back to my grandson, it was when he started looking out to, to find a job and start uh, trying to make himself marketable. Then I my input to him was, hey, this company's got to look at their look at their safety record, look at what they're doing. Now that I had skin in that game, I had blood in that game, yep. and I, it was important to me to have that 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 track record going on. It meant something to me and for him. And it was like, okay, let's let's. Uh, 
let's see, let's see what they do. When we, when we one time we had we brought in five thousand people. That, oh no, I'm take it back. It was three thousand people, three thousand linemen outside of our normal people that helped us in an ice storm. Now you talking about you talking about pulling people in from seven different states that you've never seen before. What we did was we had to ask them, give, give us your safety record. Give us your metrics here of what you have. And, and, let, and then let, let, we based a lot of decisions on tier three uh, workers oh, yeah. to help oh, yeah. get through because we, the boots on the ground, but we had to help because nursing homes were going out of power with losing uh, water with, I mean, everything you could think of related to a nice storm and it, it got tough and we needed to help. But we weren't going to put people out there that was going to get somebody hurt. And the way we made that decision was based upon the metrics and things of the way that they do their business. Yes, sir. Um, you know, I think it's really cool. Uh, one of the more fun things I get to do is occasionally go speak at like graduations at Lyman schools and things like this. And I applaud the Lyman schools for teaching their students this. But in talking to the students, they they are more interviewing the companies now than the companies are interviewing them. And the first thing they talk to them about is their safety performance. Before they talk about benefits, before they talk about pay, they want to know who's going to where, where they can go and work safe and, and have a culture that's going to encourage that. So it's that that's really makes me happy here. I want to make sure we got about four minutes left. So I want right. to, I, I can't not let you have the opportunity to get this in. So uh, if somebody wants to read your book and they don't have it already, where can they get it? Uh, I've got a KenSheridan.com website that'll take them straight to that book, be mailed out there to them or Amazon.com. KenSheridan.com. I'm going to put that in the. And then, because uh, I tell you what, I'm going to have to go order another one myself. I don't know if you can see it, but I've made so many notes and whatnot in here. I can't even read what you said anymore. And it's, I wanted to read this off the back cover. I, undoubtedly, those who read it will come back to it as often as they navigate their personal safety journeys. And I find that so true. It's like a it's like a really good movie to me right now. Every time I open the book, and I'm almost to the point where I've gotten past chapter four. I'm not quite there yet, but uh, it's just you find more little nuggets of wisdom every time. So, a uh, couple couple of maybe two minutes here, but uh, you know, we, you, you alluded to it, but. What are some of the other unintended positive benefits of a no compromise culture? Well, and I, I, I want to go back to one thing you said. I've, I've also been to these line, line tech schools and talked to them about, you know, about how important it was on safety. And I have seen that switch to where people are. For, so I'm saying recruiting is something that the, if your safety performance is, is real, and it is no compromise approach, just like I was with my grandson. Just think how important it is to recruit people there. And that's an unintended consequence. The that gone bottom line, when that dollar amount that's saved that, that goes to, to profits instead of uh, of uh, going to pay a claim or something, or and then the productivity you gain by not having people off from work and is able to, to stay on the job and be able to keep their income going and we get to meet the demands of the customer as they go on. So it becomes a way of doing business. I tell you, I tell you, I, I want to say, I can get this in in the last minute here. David, the thing that, that, that I would sum up the, this whole book about is we got nine truths there that's written through uh, it took two years to put all this together for me. And granted, I'm slow when it comes to that. But it is a, it is things that are real, things that really happen. And I'd, I'd summarize it this way, that safety and building a, a culture of no compromise for all the benefits that we get from that is not magic. It doesn't just happen. And it's not jinx for us to talk about. When you start talking about you, you have a fatality ever, let's just say ever 18 months, and you spread that out to 50 months, then that didn't just happen. If you've got that, that is something that's, that's professional skills. It is things that are worked and knowledge and learned and focus put at the right place on this. So with that, and then I would I would also say that having 
making sure that we don't ever let safety separate from operations. It's not like here's safety training over here and then I'm going to teach you how to do safety training around digging this hole to set a pole. It's not that. It's how do you safely dig this hole? You know, it's all intertwined. Yes. So I'm, I'm saying that and I'm saying that the unintentional consequences is never, and I'm convinced of this, is win, win, win in so many different aspects of the organization. From, from productivity to quality to morale. There's another thing too, morale picking up because they're proud of who they were. They're proud of their safety accomplishments and they're doing it for the right reasons. So you have morale pick up, you have recruiting pick up, you have your dollar picked up and, and you have, and you have retention. You have people who will stay with, with the company more whenever they've got a, a, the security and a good place to work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'll remind everybody these frontline fundamentals are based on the uh, frontline fundamentals column that I write in IP magazine, which is free. I encourage everybody to sign up for that. I, I just no compromise, get the book. And I've been excited about talking to Ken about it for since I read it. And uh, you certainly did not let me down in any form or fashion. I wish we had another two or three hours right now, but we don't. Uh, I, I cannot, Ken, thank you enough for being here. Thank you for writing the book and and for the impact that you've had on the industry. And uh, maybe if the opportunity presents itself, we'll have you back soon. Thank you, David. It was a, a very much appreciated. All right, absolutely. Thank you again, and thank you everybody for being here. Everybody stay safe and be well.